Uh, but this morning we're going to continue our uh, Psalms of Hope sermon series together. Um, and, and this is, I've decided in preparing this week, probably one of my favorite psalms that I've gotten to preach on so far, Psalm 62, and a message entitled this morning, Trust in Him at All Times, Hope in God's Trustworthiness. Trustworthiness, that's the word of the day, trust. And so I want to start by just kind of taking stock with you. Who or what do you trust in this morning? Do you trust uh, Vice President Biden when he promises he won't raise your taxes if you make less than $400,000 a year? Do you trust President Trump when he promises your pre-existing conditions will still be covered if he kills Obamacare? Do you trust any politician anymore? How about the media? Is CNN really the most trusted name in news? Or do you trust Fox News to be fair and balanced? I read a study this past week that said a majority of Americans now, it's, it's, it's just now over 50%, believe that fake news is, quote, a major problem even amongst traditional media sources. Who can we trust anymore? What about social media? Right, the same study cited that 66% of Americans don't trust what they hear, what they read on social media, and yet 62% of us use it as our primary source of getting news. It's the blind leading the blind, right? Let's bring it a little closer to home. Do you trust me? you trust your pastor? Do you trust the church? A 2018, uh, 2018 Gallup poll found that only 40% of Americans now believe that clergy, that church leaders, are, quote, generally honest and have high ethical standards. 40%. That number has fallen almost 30% in the last three decades. And frankly, can you blame people? I mean, it seems like every time you blink, every time you turn around, it's another news story coming out about a priest who molested a child, right? Or a megachurch pastor uh, defrocked for sexual impropriety. We pastors rank just above, barely above, auto mechanics now in trustworthiness. And if you can find a trustworthy one of those, please let me know. At least we're just ahead of uh, Congress and used car salesmen. They round out the bottom, 11% trustworthy. This is the world we live in, right? Another uh, 30-year Gallup study found that on average, levels of trust in almost every human institution, the church, the government, the media, big business, public schools, healthcare workers, banks, the police, has all declined over the past 30 years. We are getting jaded, we're skeptical, and we are losing trust. And the irony is that trust falls even as postmodernism rises. Postmodernism is the ideology of our day. It claims that truth is relative. My truth is my truth, your truth is your truth. And yet, despite the irrationally ludicrous, self-refuting logic of, of this belief that all truth is valid, and, and in a world where postmodernism presumably tells us that we should trust everyone, because somehow we can all be right at the same time, we now trust no one. So who can you trust? Maybe in such a world you just have to trust yourself. The Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things. So you certainly can't trust your feelings. Feelings are fickle. 
covered that in a recent sermon. Proverbs 28:26 cautions us, whoever trusts his own mind is a fool. So don't trust your brain either. As for trusting your body, Isaiah 40, verse 30 reminds us that even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. And I can confirm that. Uh, yesterday by the end of our volleyball tournament, church volleyball tournament. Some of y'all youth, some of our 22 and 23-year-olds were falling exhausted in the sand. I'm looking at you, Noah, Clint. (laughs) We can't all be salpais, right, and still be playing every week into our 70s and 80s. But even for Sal, right, even Sal's time will come. Gravity and entropy eventually gets the best of all of us. Our bodies will break down, and personally, I think it's all part of God's ingenious design as we get closer and closer to the grave to systematically strip us of everything else in our lives upon which we build feeble foundations. God says, if you trust in your health, I'm going to bless you with osteoporosis, with arthritis. You trust in your mind, how about dementia, Alzheimer's? You trust in your relationships, you better not live too long or you will outlive all your friends and you'll live out the rest of your days all alone. You trust in your wealth, you're running short on time to enjoy it, and even what you try and leave behind to bless your family with, estate tax. And this is the most depressing sermon ever. Or... Speaking of systematically exposing every false foundation that we try and build our lives upon, is God using King David this morning to do just that for us in Psalm 62? That's how I read this passage. I see David listing for us here six common idols in which we all too often misplace our trust. And David is going to conclude in verse 8, the climax of the chapter, by saying that we can and should trust in God alone. Trust in Him at all times, David says, and in every way. Pour out your whole heart to Him, David says, because He is utterly trustworthy. That's where we're headed this morning. And David is going to close by offering us four reasons to trust in God. And so, would you turn with me there in your Bibles? If you have them, I hope you do. If you don't, we'd love to bless you with a free Bible at the info bar as well. Psalm 62, and would you stand with me as you're able for the reading of God's Word. I'll be reading from the ESV, and we'll have words on the screen uh, in front if you need that. Hear the Word of the Lord. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From Him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. Selah. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart 
before him, God is a refuge for us. Selah. Those of low estate are but a breath. And those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are lighter together than a breath. Put no trust in extortion, set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. For once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God. And that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you that it is a firm foundation upon which to build our lives. God, that in a world of sinking sand, we have a blessed assurance and a hope in the trustworthy, unfailing, reliable, dependable truth of your word. God, we trust this morning the truth of your word that tells us as the, you know, the flowers fade, the grass withers, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And so, Father, this morning we submit ourselves under the authority of your word. We, we pray that you, you would open our ears soften our hearts, open our blind eyes in the way that only you can, Holy Spirit, to behold you, to hear your truth, to see you in your glory and your splendor, to taste and see that the Lord is good. Father, would you change us by the power of your word? Would you conform us more this morning into the image of your Son? In his precious name we pray, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so for context, I told you that Psalm 62 is identified as a psalm of David. He is the author. And the superscription in your Bibles specifies that this is a psalm according to Jeduthun. We know him from 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 41, and chapter 25, verses 1 through 3. Jeduthun was one of the chief worship leaders. Uh, that King David appointed in Israel. And so like most of the Psalms, uh, chapter 62 here was written as a song. But more importantly, and contextually, it was written like so many of the Psalms out of a place of pain for David, of pressure. We're going to discover in verses 3 and 4 here once again that David is writing Psalm 62 out of the proverbial furnace we think the context is probably Absalom's rebellion. Uh, we're not entirely sure, but it doesn't matter too much because the message is the same uh, in any case. Pastor John Bloom exposits it this way. He says, To be brought to a place where God is our only real hope left is a merciful experience. But I don't say that lightly because almost always it's also a desperate experience. Some external circumstance or internal crisis forces us into a place where our other comforts and hopes are removed or fail us. In these moments, we keenly feel our weaknesses and our vulnerabilities, and we usually long and plead with God for escape. 
But it is in these seasons that enduring faith is forged. And usually, in retrospect, such experiences, the ones where we discover that God really is our only rock, that our only real hope is from Him, those experiences prove to be among the sweetest times in our lives. I imagine your testimonies bear that out as mine does. And so what are the six false hopes that we mistakenly put our trust in according to Psalm 62 that, that God wants to remind us of this morning that our only true hope is in Him? Number one, we trust in God when life is chaotic. Verses 1 and 5, our false hope here, our trust idol here is busyness. It's the, the chaos of life, right? In David's case, his life was tumultuous. He was under attack, verse 3, from his son Absalom trying to usurp his throne, verse 4, plotting to throw him uh, down from his high position. And so what is our natural reaction when life gets chaotic? Remember, it, I, we covered this a couple weeks ago in a sermon. It's hardwired into our biology. We uh, we, we covered the, the three F's, right? We naturally respond with when we feel threatened. Fight, flight, or freeze. But to those, we added a fourth F. Faith. Faith. That's what God desires of us. And that's what David models for us here again in Psalm 62. In the midst of the onslaught and the chaos of life, he cries out, For God alone my soul waits in silence yes david was human okay just like us so i'm confident that david like us was tempted to take matters into his own hands right to, to fight to flight to get busy either fighting back against absalom to, to pack his bags and run for the hills but before he does anything here david says i'm, I'm going to wait for god in silence Listen, friends, there is no time when we need to wait for God in silence more than when life gets really chaotic, right? And yet, the cruel irony is that there's no time when it's more difficult to wait on God in silence than when life gets really chaotic, right? And I have to believe that this is one of the primary reasons that God has allowed the world to come to a grinding halt for so many months with COVID, right? to rem remind us of the value and the importance of quiet, of rest, of stillness, silence, and waiting. These are undervalued virtues in our society, are they not? In fact, I would go so far as to say that busyness may be one of our society's biggest idols which would then make its opposite, rest, by definition, one of the more disparaged, frowned-upon traits out there. We almost look down on people who don't have a jam-packed schedule. And we, we, we assume that people with whom we have to book meetings or schedule dinner dates at least a month in advance must be really important and successful, right, to fill all that time. But God says, you don't impress me. In fact, you depress me. So I'm going to give you a gift. Here's a global pandemic. Why don't you just take the next six months off and be reminded of just how disposable you are. I'm going to clear your schedule for you because you need to learn the value of rest, of quiet, of waiting on me, of knowing your place. We're picking back up here where we left off with last Sunday's message at the end of Psalm 46, verse 10, where God said, be still and know 
that I am God, not you, not your busy schedule. I am God. Friends, when was the last time you were still? I mean, really still. Sleeping doesn't count. Can we, can we just get really practical and really personal this morning? And some of y'all are about to hate me. So I'm going to warn you. Here comes the spirit of conviction. We all know what enemy number one is in our day and age when it comes to busyness. Displacing God's call to be still, to be silent, to wait for him. What is the single most busying, chaos-inducing weapon that is actively fighting your ability to rest in your life? in your pocket right now. It's a hint. Everyone pull it out. Let's literally pull them out together. Hold them up high in shame together. The single greatest thief of your time, of your energy, your rest, and your peace is your phone, right? Go ahead. If you haven't pulled it out, literally, I'd like you to do that. Half of you probably already had it out checking Facebook or Instagram already anyway. We Americans spend on average five and a half hours a day on our phones. We look down and check our phones 58 times a day. And I can guarantee you, I beat that number almost every day, personally. I am chief of sinners. One third of Americans report that they are online, quote, almost constantly. And those figures were from back in February, before COVID. So you can imagine how much worse it's gotten during quarantine when we're all bored. Now, some of y'all are, are getting really nervous right now with our phones out. Like, I'm going to start referencing Gideon, smashing idols. I'm going I'm to pass the trash can around and call you to, to, you know, step out in faith and throw your phone away. I'm not going to do that, all right? Relax. But I do want to caution us. As I said, I, I'm preaching to myself first and foremost here. I am chief of sinners. Listen, we will not be Psalm 62 people. We will not wait on the Lord in silence if we are constantly failing and falling prey to our need to fill every last second of the day on social media. If we are constantly needing to scratch our itch to stay in the know in this world of the 24 hours news cycle, if we are constantly feeding our addictions to our phones, let's call it what it is. Many of us, perhaps most of us, are addicted to our phones. How, how long do you think you could go without yours, honestly? Would you bet on it? Would you prove it this week if I challenged you? How long could you set your phone down for and not pick it up? I dare you to try this week. In the meantime, this morning, here's what I'd like to try for all of us. While you've got your phones out, turn them off. You should have them off when you're at church anyway. Uh, if you use a Bible app, put it in airplane mode. And again, we'd love to give you just a free real Bible at the info bar. I mentioned last week the Hebrew word selah at the end of uh, verses 4 and 8 denotes a pause in the singing of the psalm for the purpose of intentional reflection on the meaning and the power of what you have just sung. But I don't want to wait until we get to verses 4 and 8 to do that, to, to selah, to take a pause and to rest, it seems appropriate here, we're talking about the idol of busyness and need, needing God to save us from life's chaos. Seems to me like now is as good a time as any to, to do that, to, to say a lot, to rest, to pause. And so I want to give you just a moment with your phones off, your eyes closed. I don't want you to pray, at least not in the typical sense 
of uh, how we unfortunately use that word pray, talking at God, I, I want to invite you to listen for God for just a moment. To, to be still and know that He is God. God might not speak to you audibly. That's okay. I can assure you that you won't hear Him speaking to you if you never slow down and quiet your soul long enough to actually listen for Him. And so I want to give you a moment right now to do that, to wait for the Lord in silence right now. Take a moment. be a really healthy, practical, new spiritual discipline for you. I, I would challenge you every day this week to take 60 seconds. Don't set a timer because you might actually find that you get better and better at it. You appreciate this quiet time more and more. Maybe by the end of the week, you're spending two or three minutes without even realizing it. But I challenge you to put that kind of resting and waiting and silence into practice in your life this week and see if the Lord begins to speak to you in new ways. Number two, we trust in God when the world is shaky. Verses two and seven. Let's just zoom out from my life personally now to consider the world more generally. In verses two and seven, David contrasts God's reliability with the world's uncertainty. He says, God alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. His repetition of the rock and salvation language brings to mind Jesus' own words from Matthew chapter 7, when Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell and the floods came, but the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Think of all the glorious truths we've already proclaimed together this morning in song. How firm our foundation, how sure our salvation. We will not be shaken. Jesus, firm foundation. And my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame 
but wholly trust in Jesus' name. I will build my life upon your love. It is a firm foundation. I will put my trust in you alone, and I will not be shaken. Or that great old hymn that we sang together last week, On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is what? Sinking sand. Sinking sand. And it truly is, isn't it? COVID is exposing our idols one at a time, highlighting just how flimsy and tenuous the things that we are so quick to trust in really are. We want the world to be predictable. We want to be able to book vacations without spending that extra money on the trip insurance. We, we, We want to be able to contribute to our 401ks and bank on it being there 10 or 20 or 30 years from now when I need it. We want to be able to count on the fact that if I spend the time and the money and I incur the debt to get myself through college, that there will be a job out there waiting for me on the other side, a light at the end of the tunnel. I have to laugh at young married couples who tell me their timeline for getting pregnant and having kids. That they all have it mapped out perfectly. That would be really nice, wouldn't it? If God just followed our plans. Friends, this, this stuff is sinking sand. The world's certainty is sinking sand. And if you continue to put your hope and your trust in sinking sand, sooner or later, you better be ready to be majorly disappointed at some point in your life when the storms come. It might not be today. And maybe it's working for you for now. You're building your sandcastle higher and higher. Right? But the rains are a-coming. We all encounter storms in this life sooner or later, and they will test your foundation. The world is shaky, it's uncertain, it's unpredictable, but the Lord never changes. He is an immovable rock, an unbreakable fortress, an unshakable refuge. Put your trust in the Lord, and you will not be disappointed. Psalm 40, verse 4 declares, Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. Nahum 1, 7 says, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. Number three, we trust in God when enemies attack. Verses three and four, David says, how long will all of you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. We spent a whole week on the theme of God's deliverance, specifically from our enemies, when we studied Psalm chapter 31, and so I'll just refer you back to that message, and I'm going to be brief on this point, but for the sake of exposing our idols and their untrustworthiness, let me just name one of the biggest that comes to mind here, and that's the idol of security. Safety and security, in the same way that we want to believe that the world is predictable, Point number two, we also want to believe, point number three, that we are safe. And the reality is that we no longer live in the days of David, when the average life expectancy was somewhere between 25 and 30 years of age. Because if it wasn't the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Philistines or the Ammonites or the Moabites or fill in the blank with whatever regional rival power of the day that was coming to take your land and rape and and kill and and murder and enslave you, if it wasn't one of those enemies, the literal enemies, there were always the enemies lurking around the corner of death from simple things like infection or hemorrhaging during childbirth. We estimate infant mortality in the ancient world was 40%. 40% of kids died during childbirth. 
only 25% of kids made it to age 10. The vast majority of people never made it long enough to face our biggest enemies in the developed world today, heart disease, stroke, dementia. And it's just not cool anymore to go around killing people and taking their land. We just don't stand for that, you know, as a global community. So we live in a very different time in society, and it can be easy to get lulled into a false sense of security, can't it? Out here in West County, And I say this with no intent to instill fear or anxiety in you this morning because remember Psalm 27, if the Lord is my light and my salvation, I can say, whom shall I fear? Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer, let your requests be made known to God. And so if we trust in God, we really don't have to let our hearts be ruled by fear and stress. But that's not because there aren't real threats out there. David reminds us that our false sense of security, our ignorance of the threats that are out there, actually diminish our trust in God because we'll have the tendency to just trust in ourselves instead. We, we put God out of a job. We don't need him anymore. We fool ourselves into thinking that, that we, we can be our own protection and strength. Friends, do we, do we realize we have a real enemy this morning? Maybe not warring armies or deadly pestilence, although... Maybe that too, right? Go back to the reason for this sermon series. COVID is an enemy. Death is the ultimate enemy. It is Satan's greatest joy in this world. And it's coming for us all. But Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Do you trust in him this morning? Do you trust in him for eternal life? Number four, trust in God. When you doubt, verse 6. The point is very subtle in the text on this one, but look with me more carefully at verses 2 and 6. They are almost identical, but can you spot the difference? One word, really. In verse 2, David had said, God is my fortress, I shall not be greatly shaken. But then in verse 6, he says, I shall not be shaken, period, at all. It is as if David's trust in the Lord is actually growing as he's writing the psalm. He felt the need back in verse 2 to specify. It's actually the last word in the verse, in the Hebrew text, Rabbah. It's like David is feeling confident. He he says, God is my fortress. I'm not going to be shaken. And he starts to put the pen down, like the mic drop moment. But then he realizes that verses 3 and 4 are coming. He's still got all these enemies out there assaulting him from every side. And he can't, in good conscience, claim absolute unshakability. And so he, he throws that last word in there. I shall not be shaken greatly, right? I mean, after all, everyone... It's a little shaken at sometimes, right? It's the idol of self-assurance. Self-assurance, this, this false hope. And faith in your own faith. So many people today claim to have faith, but if you begin to ask them questions and press in and drill down deeper to their actual foundation, they don't really trust in God so much as they do in their belief in Him. They trust in their religion the religious convictions about him. 
It's this Oprah Winfrey, Joel Austin, faith in faith, the power of positive thinking, false gospel, where the most important thing is to always keep doubt at bay. Did you see that, mo- that movie, Doubt, from uh, t- 2008? I think of the powerful scene at the end where Meryl Streep uh, plays a nun who has devoted her entire life to this rigid religious system and her ability to make sense of all of it when she breaks down at the end and confesses to Amy Adams, oh, Sister James, I have doubts. Friends, if we're honest, we all do. Don't we? I know I do. And while we're not here to celebrate doubt, because Jesus says in Matthew 21 that if we have faith and don't doubt, we can move mountains. And James exhorts us in his epistle to pray in faith without doubting. So we're not here to celebrate doubt, but at the same time, maybe you need to be set free this morning from the false gospel of faith in your own faith. Ephesians 2.8 assures us that it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. But then immediately, like before we have any opportunity to start developing some perverted doctrine of faith in our own faith, because God knows our sinful tendency to want to take some credit for anything good that comes into our lives, especially the best thing of all, our salvation, immediately Paul, Paul specifies, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Jesus Christ and the salvation that he offers you this morning, the forgiveness of sin that we have in him is a grace. Praise God. He is God's gift to a desperately needy world. But we've also got to believe in him. John 3.18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned. But here's what God is telling us in Ephesians 2, verse 8 this morning. Even your ability to believe in Jesus, even your faith in me, God says, is a gift from me. Listen, it better not come from you and me, because given the chance to screw up our faith, you and I will do it every time. If my salvation relies on my own ability to believe hard enough, to have enough faith, and not doubt, then I am in trouble. I don't know about you, but I haven't moved any mountains lately. Anybody? So, according to Jesus, that means that my faith, your faith, must be tainted with all kinds of doubt. So we need to hear the good news this morning, brothers and sisters, from 2 Timothy 2, verse 13, that even if we are faithless, God remains faithful. And he's proven it in Christ Jesus. Point number five is we can trust in God when people fail us. David says, those of low estate are but a breath, those of high estate are a delusion, in the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. Uh, the high estate and low estate language is not there in the Hebrew. This is one of those rare bad translations in most of our English Bibles. The Hebrew simply says, the sons of Adam, humans, are a breath. The sons of Ish, man, are a delusion. Commentator Derek Kidner explains, uh, this is just a poetic way of saying all people. All people 
are going to fail you. It's the, it's the false idol of trusting in people. David says, you can put them all on a scale together, all of humanity's trustworthiness, and the balance actually goes up. It actually rises because their word isn't weighty. People are not trustworthy. They are together lighter than a breath. People are just a bunch of hot air. That's what he's saying. The Hebrew word for breath is that common refrain from the book of Ecclesiastes, hevel. It means vanity, nothingness, literally vapor or mist. You know how I know it's almost winter? Because I take a hot shower to try and warm up, and by the time I turn the shower off, I'm already cold again. Why? Because we're, we're all starting to play that game, right? The race against the steam, where you're frantically trying to towel off before all the nice warm steam rises in the shower and disappears, and who always loses? We lose the game every time. How long does it take for steam to vanish? It's like that, right? David says, that's what you and I are. We're here today, gone tomorrow, like that. In the grand scheme of eternity, all people are vapor, breath, and illusion. We are, we're not even sinking sand. We don't even get that much. <laughs> like you can at least build a bad foundation on sinking sand. You, how are you going to build on breath? Psalm 146, verses 3 and 4 says, Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Anybody else need me to reread that one in this election cycle? Put not your trust in princes, in whom there is no salvation. Micah 7.5 goes even farther. He says, put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence even in a friend. Even your closest friends and your family will let you down, won't they? Now, the Bible does call us elsewhere, caveat, in some sense to trust fellow believers. You think of 1 Corinthians 13, it says love one another, love bears all things, love believes all things, and so we have to be able to believe one another to some extent, to trust one another in some sense. Trust is the foundation of any relationship, so if we're going to have any relationship, there has to be some trust, and yet we also always do so recognizing, recognizing that even the best of people, the most trustworthy among us, will ultimately, inevitably fail us, let us down. We're fallible, right? And so Psalm 118, verse 8 summarizes for us, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It's pretty short and sweet. <laughs> Amen. Lastly, number six, we trust in the Lord when riches tempt. Verse 10 says, put no trust in extortion, Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. This really boils down to a war of worldviews, doesn't it? And if the skeptics are right, if God is a lie and the afterlife is fake news, then even the Bible admits, the book of Ecclesiastes admits, there is nothing better under the sun down here on this sad spinning ball than to eat, drink, and be merry. And guess what? You can eat more, drink more, and have more fun with more money. 
You really can. It's like Gertrude Stein joked, whoever said money can't buy you happiness didn't know where to shop. If this life is all there is, then your best bet is to go out and make as much money as you can and spend it all on yourself and have as much fun as you can in the little bit of time that you have. But, but, if this life is but a shadow of the one to come, if there really is eternity at stake here, and the prospect of eternal riches awaits us in heaven, then it makes absolutely no sense to store up treasures for ourselves here on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. Jesus says the rich tear down barns so they can build bigger ones to make room to store all their crops. But God says, you fools, this very night your soul is demanded of you. And who are you going to leave all those big barns to? Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so the Apostle Paul exhorts us not to set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides for us with everything we need to enjoy. Do good, be rich in good works, thus storing up treasures for yourself as a foundation for the future in heaven so that you may take hold of that which is truly life, eternal life, and the life to come. Spend this life, the next 50, 60, 70 years, investing in the life to come. That's a great investment. Eternity, right? And so in conclusion, don't trust in your busyness to fulfill you. Don't trust in the world to be predictable. Don't trust the world to be safe. It's not. Don't trust in your own ability to sufficiently trust. Trust in your own trust, faith in your own faith. Don't trust in people. And six, don't trust in money. So what can we trust in? What's left? Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord, David says, for four reasons. We'll close quickly. Number one, God is able. Verse 11, says power belongs to God. Job 42 uh, verse 2 says God can do all things and no purpose of his can be thwarted. God's able to actually help you. Number two, God is willing. Verse 12, to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. If God were able to help us, he was able to be our rock and refuge, but not willing to do so, he'd be no help to us at all. He wouldn't be worthy of our trust. But God says to us in Jeremiah 32, 41, I rejoice in doing you good. I rejoice, God says, in doing you good. John Piper calls this the most glorious promise of God in all of Scripture. To know that our good and perfect Heavenly Father says to us, if you know how to give good gifts to your own kids and you're all wicked, how much more so will I, your good and perfect Heavenly Father, give everything good that you need to you, my beloved adopted sons and daughters who I purchased with the blood of my only begotten Son. If you were worth dying for, you are worth providing for. God will not 
let you down. He is able and he's willing. And number three, please add this one in between your bullets. And I caught this later as I was studying. We can trust God because he's fair. Verse 12 says, you will render to a man according to his work. God is fair. And this brings up another really important uh, trust idol that we need to tear down this morning. Our trust in our own good works. Far too many people this morning all around the world are trusting in their own perceived goodness. If God is fair and my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, he'll let me into heaven. And I suppose that they think that heaven is just like a marginally better version of this world filled with not so terrible people. But God says, no, 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 no. Heaven is so much better than that. It is perfect. The problem with that is, for you and me, that means God can't let us in, even if you were 99.99% perfect, percent good. Because then you'd ruin perfection. You would taint it with your sin. And so the only way to get us in to heaven is to find someone without sin at all, 100% perfect, who is willing to lay down his life and trade his righteousness for your unrighteousness to satisfy God's wrath against sin, to die the death that you deserve in your place and friends on the cross. That is what Christ Jesus has done for you and me. He suffered the most unfair punishment in history so that you and I could be shown the love and grace of God instead of his wrath and his justice. But it all comes down to this, friends. You have to trust in him. You have to trust in him. And he is perfectly trustworthy. And that's number four. That's about as simply as you can put it. Trust in God because God is utterly trustworthy. Verse 8 says, trust in him at all times. O people, pour out your heart to him. God is a refuge for us. Pour out your heart. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. What a beautiful invitation this morning. Will you receive it? Will you receive Jesus, the one of whom God declares, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious and whoever trusts in him will not be put to shame will you trust in jesus today let's pray